For two long, hot summers in the middle of the 1970s, the city that never sleeps really didn't. Beginning with the first days of summer in 1976, a lone gunman terrorized New York City. He stalked young women, usually brunettes. He might see them walking down the street or sitting in a car in front of their apartments, just talking. Or maybe he would find them in the lover's lane making out with a boyfriend. The M.O. was always the same. He would approach them, not saying a word, then pull the trigger on a forty-four caliber handgun. Six people died. Seven were seriously wounded. One was paralyzed. One was blinded. Why? Was he urged on by fellow members of a satanic cult? Did he receive instructions from his demon-possessed neighbor's dog? Or was he just a sadistic publicity hound who loved playing on the fears of a city and taunting police? Or is there even more to the story yet to be uncovered? Sit back and enjoy a, what else, black Manhattan and consider the tale of David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Richard David Falco was born in Brooklyn in 1953. His mother was an unemployed waitress. When he was three years old, she gave the child up for adoption because her husband threatened to leave her if she kept him. He was adopted by an older, childless Jewish couple. Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz. They flipped his first two names and raised him as David Richard Berkowitz. Despite being very intelligent, he had a troubled childhood. He was fascinated by fires and later confessed to starting numerous fires around his neighborhood. He was a petty theft, but he was never arrested. People who remembered him back then remembered him as a spoiled brat and a bully. His parents sent him to at least one psychiatrist, but nothing ever came of it. When he was 14, his adopted mother died. He graduated from high school and almost immediately joined the Army. He was stationed in Fort Knox and later in Korea and received an honorable discharge in 1974. After he left the Army, he tracked down his birth mother, Betty. After a few weeks, she finally revealed the circumstances surrounding his birth. How he was born, and how she met another man, and that man threatened to leave her if she didn't abandon her son. By all accounts, he was devastated that she chose her husband over him and abandoned him. A psychiatrist later described this as the primary crisis of his life that shattered his sense of identity. Everything he knew about himself turned out to be a lie. After a few months, his communication with his birth mother eventually ended. He enrolled in college 
but soon dropped out and took a series of low-paying and low-level jobs. He became a tax driver and finally ended up working as a letter sorter for the post office. On Christmas Eve of 1975, he committed his first violent crime. He used a hunting knife to stab two women. One of the women was never identified, but the second was a 15-year-old high school student. Neither of them died, and Berkowitz was never considered a suspect in either assault. By the summer, he had switched to handguns and committed his first murder. Two friends were sitting in a car outside an apartment building. They had been to a disco, and Berkowitz approached the car and dropped to one knee. Putting both hands on the trigger of the gun and bracing his arms on his knee, he fired three shots into the car. One of the women was killed instantly. Her friend was hit in the leg but survived. The survivor described the murderer as a white male in his 30s, about 5 feet 8 inches tall and 200 pounds with dark, short, curly hair. The dead girl's father said that he saw someone meeting that description cruising the neighborhood in a yellow compact car earlier that week. A few months later, a young couple was alone in a car on a dark residential street. Suddenly, there was a sound like an explosion. The woman was cut by shattered glass from the car window. Her boyfriend was shot in the head. He survived, but doctors had to replace a portion of his shattered skull with a metal plate. The police didn't connect the two shootings because they occurred so far apart. A month later, two high school girls were walking home from a movie. A man approached them and said, can you tell me how to... Then he pulled a gun and shot them both. They fell to the ground and he fired more shots. They both survived, but one of the girls was paralyzed for life. In November, a couple was sitting in a car. They had just seen Rocky and were preparing to go to a dance. Then three gunshots rang out. The man suffered superficial injuries, but his fiancée, shot in the head, died. In March, a 19-year-old college student was walking home when a man confronted her with a gun. Panicking, she raised her textbook in front of her face to act as a shield. It didn't work. The bullet went through the book and through her head. She died. By March 10th, the police came to the conclusion that some of the shootings, at least, were connected. A similar gun, a 44 caliber bulldog revolver, had been used. They also realized that the female victims all had long, dark hair. The tabloids in New York City quickly dubbed him the 44 caliber killer. In April, Another young couple was parked by the Hudson River. A neighborhood heard four shots. The woman died at the scene. Her boyfriend died at the hospital several hours later. When the police arrived, they found a letter next to the bodies. The 44 caliber killer had a new name. He proclaimed himself 
the son of Sam. The letter read, I am deeply hurt by you calling me a woman-hater. I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house rest some mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like I am an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than anybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police, shoot me first, shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks, too many heart attacks. Ugh, it me it hurts, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt. My life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anymore. No, sir. No more. But I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to the yahoos. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I want to wish you, all of you, a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police. Let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. The letter was characterized with an almost childish handwriting. Many misspelled words. A few days later, the famous columnist with the New York World, Jimmy Breslin received a handwritten letter from the killer. On the outside of the envelope, neatly printed, were the words, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity. 44. This letter read, In much different handwriting, almost a pretty calligraphy, Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks, and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in the recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria 
and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad and won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night. Thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face some day. Or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking thirty-eights. Whatever. If I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam, if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job? Remember, Ms. Loria. Thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's Creation 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by the NCIC. The Duke of Death. The Wicked King Wicker. The Twenty-Two Disciples of Hell. John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working on the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Signed, Son of Sam. This letter was much more sophisticated than the first, and it was almost in calligraphy which led people to think that perhaps the writer was an artist. In fact, it was almost written in comic book style, so they checked down all the letterers at DC Comics, which was located in the neighborhood. But that investigation came up empty. Then there were two more shootings. In one, another couple was sitting in a parked car. Both survived. The final shooting was on July 31, 1977. A couple was in a parked car, kissing. A man fired four shots into the car. The woman was killed. Interestingly, she was the only blonde victim. The man was blinded in his left eye. Yonkers, New York police had begun to suspect Berkowitz based on some of the other crimes mentioned in the letters. On August 10th, police investigated Berkowitz's car and found maps of the crime scenes, some guns, and some ammunition. A detective pointed a gun inches away from his temple. Well, you got me, Berkowitz said. Well, now that I've got you, who have I got? The detective asked. You know. No, I don't. You tell me. I'm Sam. You're Sam. Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. On August 11th, Berkowitz confessed. He said that his neighbor, Sam Carr, had a black lab named Harvey. Harvey, he said, was possessed by an ancient demon who demanded the blood of pretty young girls, and he said Harvey issued irresistible demands that Berkowitz kill people. A few years later, Berkowitz claimed that this was a hoax that he had made up on the spur of the moment. 
Interestingly, at some point, Sam Carr had called the police reporting that his dog, Harvey, had been shot. Berkowitz was the shooter. But Harvey survived. He told the court-appointed psychiatrist that he murdered to get revenge on a world that had rejected and hurt him. He was found competent to stand trial and pleaded guilty to all the murders and sentenced to 25 years to life for each one to be served consecutively. He became eligible for parole in 2003. He was denied, and every two years he comes back before the parole board. He is still in prison. Some postscripts. The New York legislature passed a law making it illegal for a convicted criminal to profit off his crimes by writing a book or selling movie rights. All money received would have to go back to the victims. It was called the Son of Sam Law. Today, 41 states have similar laws on the books. In 1987, David Berkowitz converted to evangelical Christianity. He has since apologized for his murders and has told people he's no longer the son of Sam. He's the son of hope. In 1993, Berkowitz changed his story again. He claims that he only killed three of the victims. He said that in 1975, he had joined a satanic cult and that the other shootings were carried out by other cult members. Cult members also acted as lookouts and drivers during the murders. He named two of the cult members, John and Michael Carr, sons of Sam Carr. At that time, they were already dead. He has since refused to name any other members of the cult out of fear that they would harm his family. Police opened an investigation into these claims, but later dropped it, citing lack of evidence. So, who was David Berkowitz? A troubled young man out for revenge? A psychotic? Or the dupe of a cadre of Satan worshippers, inspired by an ancient demon who possessed a dog? Hmm. Thanks, Dad. We'll talk. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little speechless at the moment. I got to collect my thoughts here. So let's do trends of the crime, and then we'll we'll chat okay. about this. Because this crime, well, because this crime spree, rather, took place in New York City. NYC. Concrete Jungle, the Big Apple. I thought I would talk about the history of New York Fashion Week, because as a fashion lover, New York Fashion Week is all, has always, you know, I've always known about it, but I never knew the history of it. So I looked it up. Okay. What do we have here? New York Fashion Week was created in 1943 by Eleanor Lambert, press director of the American Fashion Industry's first promotional organization, the New York Dress Institute. This event, also the world's first organized fashion week, was called Press Week and was created to attract attention away from French fashion during World War II when... Fashion industry insiders were unable to travel to Paris to see French fashion shows. Because back at that time, French fashion was where everyone got every, everything. You know, France was, Paris was the fashion capital. 
now there's the big four of fashion. You have Paris, Milan, New York, London. Press Week, or New York Fashion Week, was also meant to showcase American designers for fashion journalists who had neglected U.S. fashion innovations because they were only looking for at France until now. The event was so successful that magazines like Vogue, which were normally filled with French designs, started showcasing American fashion. Over the next few decades, the shows began to scatter across New York City. There were shows in restaurants, nightclubs, apartments, industrial buildings, and different event venues. This chaos came to a head in the early 1990s when part of the ceiling collapsed at a Michael Kors show. This led Fern Malice, then director of the CFDA, to say that New York Fashion Week needed a new direction and a new location. New York Fashion Week was back to a centralized location, two white tents in Bryant Park. And it stayed at Bryant Park up until 2010. That's when it moved to Lincoln Center because it had 300 shows and it was just too big for the tents. But they had to move four years later when an advocacy group sued New York Parks and Rec, claiming New York Fashion Week had an adverse impact on the next door Damrosh Park. Have you been there? I have not, no. Me neither. But I do know something about Bryant Park that I bet you don't know. What is it? What famous 1960s sitcom was set in Bryant Park, New York? 1960s. Mary Tyler Moore? Oh, no. (laughs) I have no idea. My three sons. Oh. They lived in Bryant Park. Interesting. Until they moved to California. Oh, okay. Cool. Would never have guessed that. Is that the theme song? That was the theme song (laughs) for My Three Sons. Beautiful. Love it. New York Fashion Week is now in Tribeca Studios, but more and more designers are returning to off-site presentations and installations of their own. Hopefully we don't have another Michael Kors situation where the ceiling collapses, but I don't think we will because they're pretty intimate events now. So is this on your bucket list to to go to New York Fashion Week? Oh, yes. Um, one of these days, I don't know how it'll happen, but I will be invited. And another day, I will be invited to go to the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Well, it could be that someone will hear this podcast and think, I think Mike and Macy need to do a, an, a live on-site podcast from New York Fashion Week. So if any of you are listening out there, uh, we are available. Free, feel free to call our agent and uh, we'll talk. That's the history of New York Fashion Week. So... Tell us about the Black Manhattan. Have we used it before with Black Dahlia or did we do oh. something different? I don't know. Tell us I again. I don't know. Anyway, if we have, it'll be good to have one again. The, the, the Manhattan is one of the oldest American cocktails. It's a type of martini, actually, but uh, martini has kind of eclipsed it. But a, a regular Manhattan is simply rye whiskey with, with vermouth. And a couple dashes of bitters, sweet vermouth. The Black Manhattan substitutes uh, an Amaro liqueur for the vermouth. So it gives it a more of a bitter, nuttier flavor. And uh, instead of kind of the rose pink color of a regular Manhattan, it's uh, going to be very dark depending on the type of Amaro you use. So we're going to use an Amaro Maletti, which is a, oh, a very, very nutty, uh, bitter Italian liqueur. So I... 
I'll enjoy it. And since this is set in Manhattan and since it's not exactly a um, uplifting subject, I thought the Black Manhattan would be an appropriate cocktail. Sounds good. I'm excited mm-hmm. to taste it. Let's talk about David's upbringing. Because okay. I watched a YouTube video in preparation for this. And in that video was Bailey Sarian, murder, mystery, and makeup. Shout out if she ever hears this. Love you. Anyway, she said that his adoptive parents treated him really well because they really wanted a baby and they were really excited to adopt Mm -hmm. him. So I believe he probably had a good upbringing, but he had personal issues Mm -hmm. that caused him to be troubled, as you said. Um, Yeah, I mean, there were no allegations here of child abuse or no allegations that he was dissecting animals. He was a firebug, though. Mm-hmm. What we've been able to determine, there were a lot of fires set around the neighborhood from the time he was old enough to strike a match. And they found some journals after he was arrested where I think he had confessed to setting over, I'm thinking, 250 fires during wow. his life. That's um, a lot. But yeah, I mean, uh, there there doesn't seem to be any indication of, of child abuse or anything like that. But I mean, well, unless you, unless you count... Uh, your mother abandoning you when you were three years old because she didn't want to abandon her new husband. That does seem a bit abusive to me, but, but the Berkowitzes, yeah, they were, they were, seemed to be good parents. Unfortunately, Mrs. Berkowitz died when he was 14. Uh, But Mr. Berkowitz was just heartbroken, you know, when all this came out. But yeah, I agree. There doesn't seem to be that terrible type of childhood that so many of these other killers have have exhibited. And I was just going to say that three years old is pretty, uh, you know, being adopted, being placed for adoption at three years old, he may have remembered that. You Mm -hmm. know, it's probably pretty traumatic. And I know at three, I think, is when memories can start to form. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that played a big role. And especially when he met up with his biological mother and found out that basically the worst thing that I'm sure someone who's adopted could imagine their biological mother to say, says that. I didn't want you. Right. Like that's, that's the worst thing. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to find yourself pregnant and and not able to care for a child and give it up as an infant for hopes of a better life. But Mm -hmm. Um, that wasn't the case with David. Right. Very sad. Yeah. I, I remember the, uh, uh, psychologist that, or a psychiatrist that interviewed him in prison said that that was the most formative crisis of his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was shortly after he found this out that the, that the shooting started. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was that psychiatrist or a different one, but someone later said that he probably... That crisis obviously led to the killings, but it was because, likely because he was trying to get back at women because all of the motherly figures in his life left him Uh because his mother abandoned him and then his adoptive mother died. Uh And he was really upset when his adoptive father remarried. Uh He was mad at his father. He was mad at the new wife. Because yeah. he was like, if she was the love of your life, how could you marry someone else? And he just didn't understand it. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they were all brunettes. Uh, well, I don't know. I've seen a picture of of uh, Mrs. Berkowitz, his adoptive mother. She was brunette. I I'm not sure I've found a picture of his uh, of his birth mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing based on her heritage, she probably was a brunette as well. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense then, uh, because. Almost all of his victims were brunettes. Right. And when this came out in the papers in the summer of 77, I guess, uh, there was a run on hair dye and wigs throughout New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women were cutting their hair. They were dyeing their hair. They were buying wigs. I would be too. Do you think the one blonde that he shot was an accident? What do you think the situation was there? I. I don't know if it was this blonde or not, but in one of the shootings, they they said that the man had really long, shaggy hair, mm-hmm. and I so saw that. he may have just seen the you know some dark hair and pulled the trigger, thinking it was another woman. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. so too. But I'm guessing by by the end, he was getting less picky in his targets. He was just looking for women mm-hmm. uh, alone, either alone or with someone in a deserted area. And when he'd see one, he'd pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary. Um, I wrote on this on these notes different ages, but I guess hearing your story, I mean, it's not like there was a huge range in age. I was thinking of the high schoolers versus adults, but like, well, they were in the they were in their. I think the youngest was fifteen, mm-hmm. and I think I think one of the victims was twenty five. So they were all in that age range. You know, just down a high school or or career people in their early twenties. I think one of the men was thirty, but he was dating a twenty two or twenty three year old mm-hmm. when he was shot. So, no, he was obviously looking for younger women. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, hmm. Probably. Well, I'm guessing again, probably because those would be the people that you would more likely see late at night alone. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, older people probably, you know, at that time of night were probably home or they were with someone. But, you know, these were people that I mean, he'd find them out parking, basically, or they'd it'd be late at night and they'd been somewhere and they're sitting out in front of their apartment complex. So I'm I'm guessing it's just who he happened upon. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence that he actually stalked these people before he shot them. Mm-hmm. Um, he did. He was reported in the neighborhood of one of his first victims a day before. Um, but I, I, it's not like, uh, it's not like Ted Bundy. I don't think where he was picking these people out and then stalking them. I think it just, he had the gun. He saw someone alone or with two people alone. He pulled the trigger. I feel like it's also kind of interesting that all he did was shoot them. It seems like these serial killers were usually more, evil, I guess, in the wanting the person to suffer. I don't know. He, it was like he shot them and that was it. He didn't, he wasn't interested in taking totems away. Mm -hmm. Um, Pulled the trigger and and left. Mm -hmm. I guess that makes him a little more humane. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about this cult? Uh, My opinion is, um, it's bullcrap, and especially because it came up later, and he's just trying to make himself look a little better. Like, I didn't do this on my own. It was part of this bigger thing, bigger than me. 
I don't know. That's my thought. That's my thought. He, I think if this were serious, he would have brought this up at trial. I mean, well, there was no trial. He he pleaded guilty uh, shortly after he was arrested. So there was never a trial. But, you know, why wouldn't he have, why wouldn't he have brought this up? in 1978 or 1979 why why wait 15 years later and it seems like from what from what i've read that even today the story continues to grow uh it started out it was a satanic cult and then later on he would name names and you know and now it's it's becoming even more involved so um yeah i think it's he just seems like a very troubled man who decided to kill people and uh you know, as as he sits in prison, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe I can talk my way out of this a little bit more by by saying there were other people involved and the police will come to me and they'll say, you know, name names and we'll let you out on parole or something. But so far it hasn't worked and I don't think it will. Uh, I mean, this is a fairly common dodge to use. Well, it wasn't me. There was someone else involved. I mean, and, and that was that that was it from the beginning with him. Well, it wasn't me. It was the demon-possessed dog, and I think people just realized how stupid that was, and then later, well, it wasn't dog, it was a whole satanic cult. Well, let's see, this this came out in 1993, I think, when he started making the satanic mm-hmm. references. Mm-hmm. Would that have been about the time that uh, Charlie panic? Manson's helter scheme, the, not, I mean, the, the, the murders happened long before that, but was that maybe about the time when Helter Skelter was published and, and the Manson movie came out? Because at one point he he referenced one of the cult members' nickname was Manson too. So I'm just wondering if maybe he didn't decide to try to borrow some of Charlie's tales. Um, Helter Skelter and the first the original movie were in the seventies. Okay. The remake was in two thousand four. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's just a thought, but yeah, I, I wonder if maybe he didn't decide to try to get on Charlie Manson's coattails with this whole satanic cult thing. But satanic panic was in the eighties and nineties. Do you think it came from that? I'm not sure what satanic panic is. Was it another movie or something? The societal fear of the occult that troubled the U.S. and other parts of the world throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. I don't know, but of course this isn't anything new. I mean, anybody who's paying any attention to the QAnon conspiracy freaks out there realize it's the satanic cult is alive and well. You know, now it's a it's a it's a child trafficking cannibal ring based out of a pizza parlor in Washington, <laughs> D.C. So Oh, Satan, I mean, you know, Satan. Satan seems to be a a good uh, a good fall guy for mm-hmm. a lot of these people. Yeah, blame it on the devil. Do you, Do you remember Flip Wilson? You ever heard of Flip Wilson? No, never heard. Okay, he was a comedian back in the sixties, huh. and uh, he would uh, he would dress up in drag, and his uh, one of his his main lines he he'd talk about something he did, and he'd say the devil made me do. So, you know, Satan, Satan's got a lot of blame for a lot of things that happen in this world. Uh-huh. Kind of makes you feel sorry for the poor guy, doesn't it? No, I didn't say that. No. <laughs> if you 
believe in Satan, but anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on the subject of Satan, we need to talk about the demonic dog because... Harvey. Harvey. I love doggies, and Harvey was not possessed, okay? No. It's just a beautiful black lab who was just living his best life, and then an evil man shot him. I'm glad to hear he survived. He did survive. But he evidently he was possessed by an not just a demon, an ancient, ancient demon. Well, I don't believe it. No, I don't either. I did write down some quotes from Wikipedia here. Uh ancient demon issued irresistible commands. A few weeks after his arrest and confession, Berkowitz wrote a letter to the New York Post that said there are other sons out there. God help the world. But then in 1979, he declared that his previous claims were a hoax. Mm -hmm. And his court-appointed psychiatrist, David Abram, uh, Abramson, said that he had long contemplated murder to get revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. Um, which sounds more um, believable. My question is, where did Son of Sam come from? I mean, I know the neighbor's name is Sam, and that's where he said it came from. But I, I don't think that's actually where it came from because it like came out of nowhere. And then later he talked about the dog and the cult. I am. I'm I, very confused. I haven't read anything about that. I, you Me know, either. he had an active imagination, so who knows? I mean, none of his relatives that we could pin down were named Sam. Um, Originally, after that first letter, people thought he might have he might be of Scottish descent because some of the words that were used and phrases almost something a person from Scotland would say. Hmm. But I don't know. Like, you know, the poor lad, the poor wee lad, things like that. Mm -hmm. It was an odd letter. Do you think that him becoming an evangelical Christian is genuine or not? I'm my my sense is probably. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, you're in prison. You don't have a lot of hope. And in 1987, somebody gave him a Bible and, and began witnessing to him. So I think it probably was. I mean, he, uh, the one thing I will say, he's never tried to use this to, to get out. I mean, when he first came up for appeal in 2003, uh, he refused to attend his own parole hearing. He said, no, I'm, all the things I've done, I deserve to be in jail. And he's never really made a big push to be paroled, ever. And he's still, he, he's not allowed access to a computer or to the internet. But, you know, people do, from his, from his church, from his Christian community, they visit him and they post messages from him. And um, he doesn't seem to be trying to use it to his own advantage. I mean, he can't get money out of it. Um, and during the D.C. shootings, I don't know if you remember that, a few years ago when there was a sniper in Washington, D.C. that was hiding in trunks of cars and killing people, he actually issued an appeal through his church for people to please stop killing that, you know, he'd done that and, and it doesn't bring you any satisfaction. So I, I, I tend to think it's genuine, but I don't know. I do know that his last victim, I think her name was Stacy Moskowitz. Um, when her mother found out about it, 
Uh, evidently, she was quite angry, but then as the years went by, she, as she was dying of cancer, she sent him a letter and said, I forgive you for what you've done mm. to my daughter. She had, she had lost all four of her children wow. to an early death. Uh, oh, my gosh. You know, illness, accidents, and then, of course, Stacy murdered. But uh, so sad. That, was, uh, that was touching that she could find it in her heart to forgive this man. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What do you think? You think it's a, a a scam? I don't know. Now I don't. I did. <laughs> <laughs> You've convinced me. Taken me to the other side. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess in prison, what else do you have to do besides think, really? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and I mean, you have to have hope, like you said, because there's, it's either you're hopeful or you go crazy mm-hmm. or... Yeah. You die. I mean, I don't know. It must be awful. So shortly after he was sent to uh, prison, uh, somebody cut his throat. Oh, wow. Took another inmate, cut his throat, took 50 stitches to close it. Wow. Hmm. So he spent he spent a lot of those early years in prison in solitary confinement for his own protection. But wow. From what people have said, he's a model inmate. He got his college degree in prison, and he's counseling people and trying to help them. So, you know, that that will never make up for what he did, obviously. Mm -hmm. But at least he's found something to live for, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Do you remember when this was happening? Are you aware of it? Yeah, so I would have been... uh, I would have been just out of high school. You you were only a few years younger than three he is. years younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I remember this. It was on the evening news, which of course was based in New York City, and I remember those two summers. It was another son of Sam killing, another son of Sam killing, another son of Sam killing. It captivated the world. I mean, it wasn't just wasn't just New York City. I mean, this made national news. It made news in, in Paris and London. Uh, how how long were they calling him the forty four caliber killer versus son of Sam? Uh, just not long because the, the police released the fact it was all done with a forty four caliber handgun. But then shortly after that, uh, they found the letter. And, and he didn't like that name. No. <laughs> and they found the letter, and so after that, it was Son of Sam. So, Son of Sam was his invention, uh-huh, and yes. forty-four caliber was just a tabloids. Yeah, yeah, tabloids did that. I never heard him called the forty-four caliber killer, but mm-hmm. by the time it made national news, as soon as that letter came out, that's when it that's when it hit the big time. Mm-hmm. Off topic. Why, when you talk about a gun, why don't you say the point, whatever? You just say the number. If you say nine millimeter instead of point nine, I don't know. It's really point nine. I guess because it sounds bigger. I, I don't guess. know. <laughs> anyway, well, Son of Sam has been in the media a fair amount, not as much as some others that we've talked about. Uh, there is a ne- Netflix docuseries called The Sons of Sam A Descent into Darkness, which I fully intended to watch before this, but of course didn't. But I would like to watch it at some point. Mm-hmm. I think it's like five to seven episodes. Mm. Can't remember. Do you know anything about it? Is it just a recounting of this case, or are they taking the position that there are accomplices? I think they take the position that there are accomplices because I watched the preview a while ago, not recently, but when it 
when they were advertising it. And I think they talk about accomplices and that he was the fall guy. Hmm. If I'm mistaken, someone please let me know, but I'm pretty sure that's the position they take. But again, I haven't seen the actual thing yet. Uh, There's also a Spike Lee drama called Summer of Sam that came out in 1999 and a CBS TV movie, Out of Darkness, in 1985. Did you see either of those? Did not. Did not. Mm -hmm. Well, next week we have the Unabomber. Oh, boy. I know nothing about that. Oh, that's an interesting one. I'm excited. Yeah. Be good. Yeah, a little sibling rivalry there. Oh. His brother turned him in. Oh. So if you decide to do something, you better be careful. Your sister might decide to. I better. Yeah. You know, props to that brother because there are a lot of family members who don't Mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. And I think actually, you know, back to a big case that's happening now is the Gabby Petito. I think. Brian Laundrie's sister went out and was saying something about her parents, like, I, stop defending him. I saw that interview. She said, if I knew where he was, I'd turn him in. Mm-hmm. It's, at that point, it's about the victims. It's not about, yeah. um, you know, whatever. Well, maybe if this thing gets resolved, that would be another show for another season. Mm-hmm. We could think yep. about uh Think about that. Hopefully, justice happens soon. Yeah. Before the world forgets about her. But anyway, very sad. So we'll keep our eyes and ears out. Okay. Well, good job. And we will uh, see everybody next week. See you next week. Bye bye. Go Go Chiefs. Chiefs. (laughs) This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>